0: You're listening to Soundbar, a podcast on white-collar defense, presented by Goodwin. So I want all the girls watching here now to know that a new day is on the horizon. And when that new day finally dawns, It will be because of a lot of magnificent women and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, Me Too, again.
1: The Me Too movement has impacted all of America, including the legal profession. Most visibly, there have been public criminal trials of wrongdoers such as Harvey Weinstein. We begin tonight with the Harvey Weinstein verdict,
0: guilty of rape and criminal sexual assault.
1: Where the government's lawyers battle defense attorneys in open court. Less visibly, for the most part, organizations such as corporations and schools seek legal assistance in evaluating and addressing internal allegations of sexual misconduct. Organizations sometimes look to white-collar defense attorneys in doing this work. The skills that are necessary to do a Me Too investigation, after all, are similar to the skills that white-collar defense attorneys bring to bear on other kinds of internal investigations. Interviewing witnesses, assessing credibility, simple fact-finding. My guest today is Helen Cantwell a white-collar partner at dub avoids in Plimpton in New York.
0: It is really important in the important work that we do that we have a group of diverse people bringing their talents and life experiences to hard credibility calls and, and hard investigative decisions.
1: Helen's originally from Buffalo, and Helen and I discuss her involvement in doing Me Too investigations and other things. Hope you enjoy it. Helen, good morning. Thank you for coming.
0: Happy to be here. Good morning.
1: Welcome to Soundbar. We're going to have some fun. Um, I've read your bio with care, as I do with all of my esteemed guests and some of my unesteemed guests. And one thing interesting about your bio that's a little bit different than most big law, white-collar law firm partners, uh, is that you were not only a former AUSA, but you were also an ADA. Um spending time at the Manhattan DA's office before you were in AUSA in the Southern District. Um, How was it that you came to start your legal career as a DA?
0: When I graduated from law school, I was not particularly interested in working at a law firm, large or small. I really wanted to be a trial lawyer. I really wanted to be a public servant and, and do good in the community, so to speak. And uh, at the time I graduated from law school, then Mayor Rudy Giuliani had actually basically shut down the Legal Aid Society, wasn't allowing them to hire new people. So, in some sense, my path was forged by Rudy, and uh, I went to the Manhattan DA's office because they were hiring, but also because uh, Mr. Morgenthau was the DA at the time. He obviously was uh, a towering figure uh, in public service. and so I got my dream job right out of law school and, and was thrilled.
1: Did your Harvard Law School classmates ridicule you for thinking you could do good as a lawyer?
0: It's funny. They didn't ridicule me. They were jealous. Um, one of the things that was interesting about the Manhattan DA's office is that it was actually a strike against me that I had gone to Harvard Law School. I think they interviewed maybe 40 kids in my law school class at Harvard um, and on-campus recruiting, only two people got callbacks. And I think that speaks to the uh, community that Mr. Morgenthau built in the office. He wanted people from a diverse group of backgrounds. He wanted people from a diverse group of law schools to be representing the people of the state of New York in court. And so I was one of the very few uh, lawyers in my class at the DA's office that had gone to an Ivy League school.
1: And, and what sort of uh, cases did you work on in the DA's office? Were you in, di- were you in different uh, units uh, at, at that time?
0: Well, everybody starts out with about 200 misdemeanors. And after that, um, at a time, by the way, so at any given time, I had 200 cases in the 90s. Um, after that, I worked uh, principally on domestic violence cases. And then I joined the um, sex crimes unit. Uh, which was a a pioneering unit in in prosecution in the United States at the Manhattan DA's office.
1: How so? How pioneering?
0: I think it was the first one in the country of its time. It was founded by Linda Fairstein, um, who was still there while I was there. Um, And it was the first office in the country to really put a lot of resources into trying to prosecute crimes of sexual violence, realizing that they were different than other crimes, um, trained detectives at the NYPD to work hand in hand with us um, and, and really tried to specialize in uh, bringing, trying and winning those kinds of cases.
1: So after four years in the Manhattan DA's office, you go to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. Um, apart from that being unequivocally the elite institution in the Western world, um, why do you make that move?
0: Well, I'm not going to comment on whether it's such an elite institution. Uh, Folks definitely worked hard and tried to do justice, um, I would say. I wanted to continue a career in public service, um, for sure. I also wanted to work on bigger and more complicated cases. The Manhattan DA's office is an amazing institution and has a lot of um, really complicated and interesting investigations. But I think at that time... I thought it would be the, going to the U.S. Attorney's Office would just be that much more interesting, that much more challenging. Uh, and I got to work on amazing cases uh, while I was there for about eight years.
1: So you leave the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2008 and you go to Deva Voice where you are now, correct? That's right. And so I guess you just missed uh, serving under Preet Barrara as your U.S. Attorney, but I, I have to ask if you've checked out his podcast.
0: So, Preet and I were colleagues in the office, so we definitely got to work together. Um, I, I, our family does listen to his podcast. He had a particularly good one um, on 9 11 this year about a, one of the first female firefighters. Um, so, so, he's definitely uh, a, a leader in the podcast era, if not in, in the podcast world, if not just in law enforcement in general.
1: And it's it's nice to know you can always get a fix on the general awesomeness of the Southern District whenever you need it, right?
0: Well, I think I get that fix uh, every time I go down there representing my clients. But uh, <laughs> it's it's always it's always a it, look. It's an amazing institution. Uh, very proud to have served there and and continue now to I guess litigate against them.
1: So one of the things interesting about your practice that I want to focus on today is that you've represented a number of institutional cl- clients in investigations into uh, you know, workplace sexual harassment or sexual harassment in other types of settings. Um, these might colloquially be called as Me Too investigations. Um, your bio notes that you've done work for CBS, which was obviously heavily publicized, the board of the Cleveland Orchestra, the NFL, Syracuse University, and I'm guessing there were probably dozens more that never became public. How did you first get involved in doing this kind of work?
0: Well, when I came to Debevoise, um, again, I had not really wanted to be somebody who worked in a large law firm. And I decided to make the transition to see what it was like. I assumed I would just be working on You know, cases involving financial crimes or accounting fraud or whatnot. I would never have imagined that working on cases involving sexual misconduct or sexual violence would have been such a prominent part of my practice. As I mentioned, I had worked in the sex crimes unit at the Manhattan DA's office. So at this point, I actually have, you know, decades of experience. Interviewing people who are um, survivors of sexual violence and sexual abuse, child abuse, um, and also um, uh, women who are themselves that are victims of sexual harassment in the workplace. This is something I've done my whole career. And so I think uh, the reason that um, our firm and and me as a member of the group that does these cases have been, uh, hired in these cases is because when we approach them, we make a commitment to the client that we will call the facts as we see them, that we'll do what we think is the right thing to do. Um, we will let the chips fall where they may. And I think we have a lot of credibility with both um, survivors or victims of sexual misconduct when we talk to them about our experiences and our cases and also credibility with boards of directors or senior management at companies or other types of institutions who often really just want to know what happened. And if they can figure out what happened, then hopefully they'll take appropriate action based on the facts.
1: I mean, it's funny, though, that you know a lot of big law, white collar practices that that don't have people with your special experience as a DA doing sex crimes work are, are trying to get in, in on this action. I mean, if you Google big law and Me Too, the internet explodes. I mean, half of it is about law firms that have done bad things, but the other half is about law firms trying to develop, you know, practice areas in the Me, in the Me Too world. Um, but pu- putting aside your own compelling sort of personal experience that you could sell, I'm sure, to anybody who had a serious Me Too type of event investigation, why should a white-collar practice area in a large law firm be the best fit to do this kind of work. I mean, let me play devil's advocate for a minute, right? Um, There's typically no law enforcement investigation overhanging a company that has this kind of a problem. If there are any legal issues, you know, it's not like securities fraud or FCPA or mail and wire fraud. It would be possibly state law issues. Uh, I mean, these are issues that are, have been handled, you know, historically by employment lawyers doing Title VII work, and you know they can, they have, they've handled this litigation before. They can revise, you know, the employee handbook and all that sort of thing that employment lawyers do. Why are white collar firms and white collar practitioners why are they um, the right choice for this kind of work? Well, I
0: think. We're not always the right choice, I guess I would start out by saying. If you have a, a relatively junior employee who's implicated, you know, we may not be the right choice coming to a firm like Debovois um, and having a, a white-collar investigation launched. But for any company or organization for which the, either the accused or the potential victim um, is a senior person or is a person that's sort of critical to the mission— Or there's a reputational issue that, um, you know, the institution wants to be able to assure their stakeholders, their community, that they've taken a hard look at things and they are going to do the right thing, whatever the facts may show. Just like in other areas of my practice, that's when hiring a firm like Debo Voice is appropriate. And again, you know, most of the clients... That Well, all of the clients that hire me in this area, I explained this to them very carefully at the outset, you know, you are going to get my view about what the facts are, um, and I'm going to tell you exactly what I think happened based on the evidence, and then it's up to you, board of directors or company, to do what you think is appropriate as a result of a rigorous factual investigation in this area, where we're all humans, right? We all have had experiences. We all may think of ourselves as having knowledge or expertise about, you know, these kinds of human experiences. I think it's very valuable to senior management and boards of directors of companies to have somebody come in with some expertise to call it like they see it and try to try to get to really the facts and the bottom of what happened. In a very systematic way, that has tremendous value if you're on a board of directors and you're trying to figure out, as some of my clients have been, you know, what should we do with the CEO or what should we do about a really important member of our management team?
1: Have you ever, this is sort of a speech that you make at the outset, this is what I'm going to do, hire me if this is what you want, I gather. Right. Have you ever gotten pushback about, well, you know, we don't want someone like, too independent here?
0: So um, those people don't hire me. Um, Most of the time, frankly, we do get hired because in this environment, that is what people really do want. I would say they want to know the truth. They want to know the facts. They want to do the right thing. Um, I do sometimes get pushed back at the end because one of the other things that we often do, especially with an institution like a school or a, or a not-for-profit that's a high-profile not-for-profit, is they want to be able to tell their community at the end of the investigation what the facts were so that they can be transparent with their community. And if the facts that we have found are not flattering, um, sometimes there's a discussion about the level of transparency um, that is really desired at the end of an investigation But I'm happy to say that for my clients, at least, um, you know, because I've given them that talk at the beginning and made it clear that if you want transparency, you're going to get transparency and you're going to get fact-finding, at the end of some of the matters that you've mentioned, I've obviously authored or co-authored reports that are publicly available that show that those clients understood the, the goal of transparency, what that meant, and then followed through on it um, through to the end.
1: Do you typically talk about whether you will do a report and whether it will become public at the beginning of an engagement with the client?
0: You do talk about that. Um, that's not the same decision for every client. I think um, uh, usually my advice is let's figure out you know, what is needed as a matter of governance for that particular type of institution. Public companies are different than non-public companies are different from schools, for example. Um, And sometimes you write a written report that is not made public. Um, Sometimes you write one, obviously, that is. It all depends on the facts and circumstances.
1: So when in a typical investigation done in a, white-collar context, um, you know, it's it's mandatory that the employees be interviewed by the company doing the investigation, and the employees are given upjohn warnings and so forth. What's different about a, a Me Too investigation? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that employees whose names come up as someone that should be interviewed, are they required to, to talk to you as they would in a typical white-collar investigation context?
0: It depends on who they are. So most of my clients would not require a potential survivor or victim to talk to me. And I believe in that pretty firmly. I think um, I've spent so much of my career working with people who are the victims of or survivors of sexual misconduct and violence. There's no same way that any woman, frankly, reacts to that, that I have tremendous respect for women or frankly, former child victims who don't wanna to talk to me. Um, I try to encourage them too. I try to tell them why I think it might be good for them. And I am very clear that it would be good for my client who really wants to know the truth. Um, but I'm deeply respectful that people may not wanna to talk to me. If you're a potential fact witness um, or you're the alleged perpetrator, both of those categories of people have to talk to me. And if they don't talk to me, then I would give advice that, you know, you sh- you could take that into consideration in whether or not you want to continue to employ that person. With upjohn warnings, um, I do not give so-called upjohn warnings um, to alleged perpetrators. I don't, uh, I don't uh, do that because I don't want any potential understanding that there could be any restriction on how i use the information so i obviously advise them that i'm not their lawyer right and i advise them as to who my client is but i don't make any promises about whether the information will stay public whether their name will stay public etc um, i will make um, promises of confidentiality to survivors or alleged victims of sexual violence or sexual misconduct to the extent that I am legally able to. Um, if there is a companion criminal investigation or state AG investigation, you know I could be, or the company could be, or the institution could be forced to turn over those names. Typically that has not happened. That hasn't happened to me yet. I'm usually able to convince the government agency that's investigating that people came forward and gave me information on the promise of confidentiality and as a social good, we should continue to encourage people to speak out about their experiences. But there's always the chance that, um, you know, a grand jury subpoena is um, served for victim data or survivor data. And I suppose there is a world where uh, a district attorney's office may force a company to turn over names, even notwithstanding the, the rules of engagement in an internal investigation.
1: Right. So most of these investigations, I, I guess but not all, are investigations of allegations of inappropriate behavior of men, often senior men, towards um, younger women. When you're staffing a team for this kind of an investigation, uh, um, you know, would, would you prefer having women on the team helping you with the interviews than men because they may have some heightened sensitivity to these types of allegations?
0: So I don't prefer to have any one kind of person on any team that I work on. Um, I believe very strongly in staffing uh, teams of diverse lawyers, whether it be their gender, lawyers of color, their sexual preferences. Um, I think that's even more true in these kinds of investigations. Many firms do tend to staff these cases with mostly female lawyers in part because they, a lot of the young female lawyers want to work on these cases. They want to be part of these investigations. And I obviously encourage all lawyers to be part of these investigations and bring their diverse and different perspectives to the table, Um, especially in cases where we're making hard calls. Um, You know, they don't, necessarily call Debevoise and Plimpton for the easy cases. (laughs) A lot of the time we get called for the hard cases. And it is really important in the important work that we do that we have a group of diverse people bringing their talents and life experiences to hard credibility calls and and hard investigative decisions.
1: Helen, let's pivot for a moment to discuss uh, NDAs or non-disclosure agreements. Um, Lawyers have been familiar with this concept for years and the past five, ten years, NDAs have made their way into the public press, the news, the Washington Post, the New York Times, TV, and so forth. Um, and I think the, the popular references to NDAs are to, more specifically, to confidentiality requirements in settlement agreements, um, in, you know, a sexual harassment context. Um, you know, this came up in the recent Democratic primary debate where Mayor Bloomberg was critici- former Mayor Bloomberg was criticized for having used these at Bloomberg and he released people from NDAs after this criticism. Has, has the issue of whether or not a client of yours should enter into a settlement agreement with a victim that has a confident, confidentiality clause? has that come up in your practice?
0: It has come up. um, And there have been changes in the law Uh, in New York, I mentioned, because we happen to be in New York today, but I'm sure in other states as well. So companies, if they're going to use NDAs or enter into NDAs with uh, soon-to-be former employees, should be thoughtful about new statutes that have been passed that govern the use of them. My view on NDAs is NDAs have value to both parties and if companies are willing to pay um, survivors or victims of sexual harassment or sexual misconduct for uh, entering into an NDA that the in most cases it's a woman has the right to choose whether or not she wants to sell that confidentiality and that has tremendous value to her and she should be able to do that if she wants. Um, So I don't think that they're all bad. Um, It also may be that a woman who's been the victim of sexual harassment um, is then trying to restart her career after what was surely an awful experience. And she may want to do that without the uh, feeling that people know about what happened to her or that people may think of her differently uh, having been the victim of such conduct and misconduct and so i think it's always an individual decision um i think mike bloomberg could have used my help in preparing for the debate and answered those questions more smoothly
1: in any number of ways i'm guessing
0: perhaps um but uh but i think they're not all bad and and actually a lot of plaintiffs lawyers um Uh, value them as well, the people that represent these victims of sexual misconduct, because they know that they do have tremendous value to their clients.
1: Helen, you've spoken and given presentations about women's potential for advancement in the legal profession. Uh, I just want to follow up on a few specific points that you've made in this context. Uh, I mean, one thing that's interesting is you've noted that corporations uh, seem to do better at advancing women lawyers than than law firms do. Um, in 2018, 28% of the GCs of Fortune 500 companies were women, where only 20% of the equity partners at law firms were women. Do, do you have any theories on why this is so?
0: It's a huge topic, which we we won't certainly tackle today. I think there are so many issues around... Um, how women are able to advance to positions of true economic power in the law and I suppose elsewhere in society. Um, Law firms typically reward um, people for being productive business generators and they reward people that they believe will be productive business generators with equity partnerships If you are not somebody who has formed close relationships with people who have that economic power in the first place in the law firm, or um, you're not seen as somebody who could do that on his or her own, your chances for advancement um, into equity partnership are reduced. And I don't think that there's been enough work done and recognition for that fact um, and support for that um, at big law firms in the United States. I think many women have taken a path to go in-house and work at corporations because they viewed the path as easier towards advancement. And so um, you have women making choices themselves about where they think the advancement is most likely. And then you have situations where women have stayed with law firms and advanced to partnership, but perhaps have not been in a position to be those business generators and be those client team leaders that are really necessary to fully advance um, within um, the law firm. I really commend to people to read a study that Professor Wilkins did at Harvard. It so happens that one of the law school classes that was profiled was my law school class about what men and women in our profession do either when they have children? Do they work more? Do they work less? How many women are truly rainmakers at their firms? Um, and, and and what happens to women in their profession once you sort of get in the door, say, at a big law firm? Usually that's a 50-50 split. But thereafter, the number of women who are truly advancing to the highest levels of our profession, at least in big law firms, is, is really falling off quite sharply.
1: Well, oh, you've done a lot of work for Toyota and their um, in-house counsel's office has some very progressive views about about what kind of law firms they hire and what they look for uh, in their own efforts to promote diversity. Can you tell us about that?
0: Sure. So um, Chris Reynolds and later Sandra Phillips Rogers are the two general counsels at Toyota that I've worked for. Um, they have really uh, – Put their money where their mouth is. Um, they do very simple things, like we have to give them data on who is on their teams across a wide range of metrics on a periodic basis. They've hosted meetings and discussions uh, uh, at the company about what law firms can do, not just <coughs> to promote a diverse work environment, but really promote and advance lawyers of color Women lawyers and 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 lawyers just that come from different backgrounds. I've had detailed discussions with the senior lawyers at Toyota about the members of my team and how I'm trying to promote them and how I'm trying to give them opportunities so that they can shine and then advance. Um, My personal goal is to advance them into the partnership. Um, Debevoise, as you may know, is a lockstep compensation firm, so. Um, I make the same amount of money whether I bring in lots of work or if I don't bring in any work. But still, uh, within our firm, um, we are working hard to make sure that we have a lot of women partner leaders and lawyers of color leaders among the partnership. We, like everybody else, can do better. But having a client demand that of us will then force the law firms to react and change their behavior I believe that very strongly. And I have seen Toyota do that in having really deep conversations with us about who is working on their matter, what kind of team they expect to show up. And then when when a diverse group of lawyers shows up or a lot of women leaders show up, really invest in our team. And um, I'm so proud of the members of our Toyota teams and some of them are even at the Southern District of New York now. Mm. Um, and uh, and uh, one last year was promoted to partnership um, who is a, a lawyer of color, n- woman named Arian June. So I'll give her a shout out. You know, Toyota is the kind of client that invests in our people, which then helps us promote people, teach them those skills to become um, – the leaders of the next generation, which I firmly believe will be a much more diverse group of leaders than the group that we have right now.
1: Well, one thing I think that you've pointed out in a presentation that double Voice has done specifically is to survey high performing women associates who leave the firm and really dig into the reasons why they left. What, what have you learned from that exercise?
0: I think the biggest takeaway that I had from that exercise was that, um, Not all women are making fully informed choices when they make a decision to step away from the law firm. And the law firms are not very good at communicating to women what their potential path for advancement to partnership is. Often we found that we were only telling women how great we thought they were when they'd already told us they'd found another job. At the same time, the women were thinking that they would Uh, have a better path to advancement or have a better so-called work-life balance if they went in-house. And so it was an interesting exercise because we then got to speak to a, a group of really talented women lawyers who had left the firm for other opportunities and get a sense from them of whether that turned out to be true and were there areas that we could improve in our communication with uh, talented women lawyers coming up through the ranks to convince them that being a law firm partner was actually a very fulfilling job that they might be interested in. Mm. Um, not, notwithstanding the fact that it was never a job that I was particularly interested in, I've now really come to love it and and tried to communicate that to uh, the women coming up uh, the ranks and, and show them how they can succeed, how they can have a fulfilling career, and stay in the law firm. That's really our goal.
1: Helen, this has been great. Thank you so much. Uh, But I can't leave without asking you the mandatory guest question, and this is where the pressure is really on. What was your first concert? What was the venue? How old were you? And who did you go with? And before you answer and consider whether to tell the truth or not, I will let you know that previous guests have identified the following as their first concerts. Bruce Springsteen, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, Southside Johnny, and The Who. Go ahead,
0: Ellen. The pressure is really on. So I'm going to give you a new group for your list. Uh, My first concert was Pink Floyd. So,
1: so you think you could tell.
0: At the Nassau Coliseum, which I don't believe exists anymore, um, I was 17 years old, um, and I went with my then high school boyfriend.
1: I think that... uh,
0: I think that passes the truth test.
1: I I think it even bolsters our list of first constant. Helen, thank you so much. Glad to have you
0: on Soundbar. Thanks for having me
1: people, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Helen Cantwell. Let us know how we're doing. Write a review. Five stars. Check out other episodes. Five stars again. Stay in touch. Talk to you next time.